all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Hi, I'm Richard Gershon, the host of In Legal Terms and a professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. If you miss a live In Legal Terms episode, find our podcast, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy, where the doctor's always in. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And this is your program where you can call in with any type of health care uh, question for yourself or somebody else in your family, maybe even a friend. Hope everybody is having a great early fall. October's finally here. We wish the rain would come with it uh, for most of the state. I know a lot of par- portions of the state are getting rain, but uh, still where I live, not much is there. Now, usually we have a program that's wide open for any type of topic, um, and you really drive that that content. Today we have a special treat for you, though, uh, that I'm going to introduce in just a minute after our first caller. Uh, we have Dr. Galen Marshall from the University of Mississippi Medical Center that's going to uh, be talking about some research that's going on with the immune system. I think it's going to be a fascinating topic that's going to be very applicable to what a lot of people have uh, questions about. So just uh, hold on to that, and uh, we'll have that discussion in a few minutes. But first, we want to go to Mike. Mike from Natchez. Good morning, Mike. What's your question for this morning? Uh, Dr. Stewart, I want to get your take on this new uh, specialty or new way of healthcare integrated functional medicine. What do you do? You know what that is? I'm sure you do. Yeah, and I, I know a little. I know a little bit about it. So basically, it means taking a comprehensive approach to healthcare and thinking about the root cause of something that's that's causing a problem, or a specialized prevention strategy to address some of those issues. So. And to be honest, you know, it's all, you know, it's sort of like that saying what, you know, what goes around comes around again uh, later. Uh, This is really the way physicians were trained. You know, if you think about historically, physicians have looked at, particularly when they see patterns of things, they've looked at the greater system and what people are being exposed to, their family dynamics and sort of genetic patterns in families, and really coming up a, with a way to treat that. And I, I, Mike, I think it, that's that's going to be, we didn't prompt you to call or anything, but that's sort of a nice lead in to some of the things we'll be talking about for the hour uh, is on you know, what is beyond just taking a medication for something? Are there other ways that we can augment the body's natural immune responses to things? Or can we prevent certain things from happening? And there's a lot of research into this. And this is just another branch of medicine that has sort of a focus on that to say, what can you do to maximize how you're treating the conditions that you have? And then how can you prevent those things that you're most likely to get? So, 
I, Mike, I'd say that's all. I'd be all for diving into that. And well, go ahead. Uh, uh, Dean uh, Lester Breslow, the dean of the UCLA School of Public Health, mm-hmm. did a study uh, 30, 40 years ago in Oakland County, and he sent out students to find out what pe- pe- keeps people healthy. <laughs> they came up with seven steps that your grandmother told you. Right, you right. Sleep, don't drink, don't smoke, exercise, eat well. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, they're coming up with this fancy integrated functional medicine it's been going well for years. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I, I, th- I appreciate the call, and I and I really respect your program, and I listen to it every Wednesday. Thank you so much, Doctor. Thank you for calling, Mike, and bringing that up. Yeah, and a lot of those topics we do, you know, talk about a lot on uh, on Wednesday on Southern Remedy. What are the things that you can actually do to prevent disease and address it from multiple levels? You've probably heard me talk about hypertension more than you want to hear sometimes, but we always start off with sort of that basic. What can you do to make an impact on your blood pressure from a food and activity level? And then doing away with some of those other things, like Mike mentioned, you know, limiting the amount of alcohol that you drink, not smoking, not starting smoking, those kinds of things. What are the things that we can maximize the way our bodies are designed to live healthily? So uh, we're going to dovetail dovetails right into uh, our special guest here in the studio, uh, Dr. Galen Marshall, who is professor of internal medicine and is an, an allergy and Immunologist. We forget about that last part of it, but immunology is a subject that he has been uh, dedicated to in his career and uh, in the broader sense with uh, research. So what types of research activities uh, would be most beneficial for patients and how we do those? Uh, we're going to be talking about how that looks because I think there's a lot of misconceptions. So, Dr. Marshall, thank you for uh, joining us this morning. Tell us a little bit about yourself. It's a real pleasure to be here. I'm actually a native Texan. I uh, grew up in uh, Texas, uh, went to graduate medical school in Texas in Washington, then um, after medical school went to Iowa to train in medicine and then went over to Memphis to train in immunology and allergy, then went back to Houston, was at the University of Texas at Houston for the first 15 years of my career, was recruited to come here in 2004 to start the allergy immunology program and have been here ever since. I thought I'd be here about five years. This is our 20th year here. And my wife and I consider ourselves adopted Mississippians. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know a lot of that overlaps my training and uh, early uh, faculty uh, involvement at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. So for those of us who don't know, what is an allergy immunologist? What, what do they train in and, and what, do you, what do you see? So we come from uh, one of two primary specialties, either internal medicine or pediatrics. Uh, as you well know, because you are one, the MedPeds people are our ideal uh, candidates that come in. It's a two- to three-year program, two-year standard for clinical, and if they want to do a research uh, extension, they can get a third year uh, for, uh, to be in the lab and to do uh, research. And we study everything and take care of everyone from as simple as someone with hay fever to someone who has uh, bee sting anaphylaxis to some of the more interesting things that we're seeing now that seem to be a result of the environment that we live in. Not only the physical environment with the toxins and the exposures and so on, but the internal psychological environment. I have for now about 27 years studied how the mind affects the immune system. And I'm what's called a psychoneuroimmunologist. I try people not to emphasize the first syllable (laughs) so that I'm a psychoneuroimmunologist. And I, again, 
various forms of stress, physical stress, pain, poor sleep, all the things that the first caller was mentioning in functional medicine Mm -hmm. have adverse impacts that are discernible on the immune system. The one nice thing about being an immunologist, and I started out, uh, I was going to be a Ph.D. immunologist in an undergraduate institution and do work on mice. I went to medical school with the, almost as an afterthought and fell in love with clinical medicine and decided that my, my calling was to do this, but with patients, which is what I've now I've done for 30-something years. And the, the really interesting thing about the immune system, the way that we were made, the immune system very early on is one of the first systems that develop in the developing baby. And it is it asks three questions as it goes through and it looks at all the different molecules in our bodies it develops. And in utero, it programs, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. So then when the baby's born and is now in the external environment, it still does that. That's me. That's me. Oops. That's not me. Then it asks the second question. Is that dangerous? If it's not, it ignores it and moves on because we eat things that are not us. We breathe things that are not us. But most people, that doesn't adversely affect. But then if it does answer the second question, yes, that's that's dangerous to me. It then asks the third question. How is it? And it activates the various arms of the immune system. If it doesn't work well enough, those individuals have an immune deficiency disease. Sometimes we do that because of their underlying disease. Transplant patients have to have their immune system suppressed so they don't reject that that's not me organ. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cancer patients, by trying to kill off the cancer, very often the drugs will suppress their immune system. And then people with autoimmune diseases will oftentimes have to have that done. The other half of it is when their, their immune system overreacts then it's, we call them hypersensitivity diseases, and allergy falls in the middle of that. Another thing that people would know, it, rheumatology falls in that as well. The general difference is that rheumatology studies and takes care of people who have turned on themselves, mm-hmm. their own, therefore autoimmune, whereas the allergy is the outside uh, antigens that are there that for a non-allergic person, it doesn't bother them. But for the allergic person, for reasons that no one really understands, but they un sometimes very aggressively recognize this as harmful and mount all the troops for something that is not that is completely harmless. We don't know of any underlying pathology potential for a tree pollen uh, or even for dust in the home, but there are people that are violently allergic to those. As one of those people who has to aggressively treat that on a regular basis, um, uh, you know, I, I wish we could turn that off, but uh, certainly it has its role, right, in, well, it, in lots of other things. It not only has its role in terms of that system properly directed, but in fact, we have tools to be able to turn it off selectively now that we haven't before. The big key to this is like anything else related to health, it's immune balance. And when we get unbalanced, if it happens slowly enough, it's like hypertension, it's like uh, kidney disease, it's like a lot of the chronic illnesses. If it happens slowly enough, we don't pay that much attention to it, and we don't realize it till we get to a crisis point. And that, by the way, just as an aside, it's what we got to see firsthand when the pandemic came. Mm-hmm. There were people that were dying that we sort of, and I mean this in quotes but and not, uh, not uh, irreverently, that we expected to die. Older individuals, people with very severe disease, transplant recipients, cancer patients, and so on, when they got this new bug that there was no vaccine for, there was no host immunity or herd immunity, we expected those folks to pass away, and that happened. 
What we didn't expect was the younger, healthy individuals, children, and even young adults that would get the COVID illness seem to be okay, and they just step off the cliff. And what it spoke to us from an immunology community, it spoke to us that we live with a lot more abnormalities because they're not challenged, and it speaks to the importance of us uh, promoting immune health just as much as we promote blood pressure health and other things. Yeah, that's a fascinating subject. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. This is Dr. Jimmy with you this morning with a special guest, Dr. Galen Marshall, who is a professor of internal medicine and immunology at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And we're talking about the immune system and its interplay with different things and how perhaps we can uh, modulate that with different things. And we'll talk about a little bit of research opportunities that you might be interested in. So, Dr. Marshall, there's a lot of misconceptions. Sometimes we have questions uh, from our listeners about this, about medical research and the different types of research that you can do. You alluded in the past that, you know, initially you had a uh, a view that you were just going to be working with mice all your life and doing research there. And I think that's the that is one of the misconceptions and the ideas that people have about medical research. And they'll say, hey, I don't want to be a lab rat. I don't want to do this. How, how do you do that with a, um, with a, from a safety standpoint? Uh, just tell us a little bit about it in general first, and we can talk about sort of the safety behind it, measures that are in place. And then what's the benefit both to the individual person and with the research at large? Uh, the, that's a great question. Uh, if you think about research back in the day, again, going back into my own history, and I started out, I went through, in those days, you got a master's degree, then you got your PhD, then you did your postdoc. So it was all this training, and then you'd go back. But then if you wanted to talk to somebody that was doing human research, you didn't even go to the same meetings. You oftentimes didn't work at the same place. So they were, they, they, there were barriers that were built in. Uh, 30 years ago or 35 years ago or so, people began to break those uh, barriers down. And they actually invented a new term called translational research. And the idea of translational research is that that in and as the government that funds much of this research, not all of it, but much of it through the National Institutes of Health or the NIH, uh, the NIH back in those days would fund basic research and they'd fund clinical research at the same time. And then they begin to realize, you know what, if you can't apply that basic research for the benefit of patients, then it's not it's not really useful stuff to do. It's interesting knowledge, but it's not really useful. So the idea was to develop a research spectrum that could translate the findings in early research into benefit for human beings. Well, it goes there. There are various stages of them. There's the earliest animal research. There's early clinical trials. I'll come back to that in a second. There are later trials that then okay, I've just developed the best asthma therapy there is, and it works great, but. It's so expensive that nobody can ever Hmm. afford to buy it. So it's called implementation science. And it's the new area, one of the newer areas that goes between the individual patients and into the population. And then the ultimate extreme are the epidemiologists and the population scientists that say, okay, how does this impact on society? Is this money well spent? Does this people live longer? Do they have a better lifestyle? That whole spectrum is there now. And the 
cool thing is that not only do we train people now, the kids that work in my group uh, learn how to talk to the epidemiologist. I happen to be joint appointed in the School of Population Health as well. And part of the reason that I agreed to do that, and they asked me if I would do that, is to help that translation between the clinical trialists and the population scientists. And it works out very, very well. Yeah, I should have, uh, I should tell our, our audience that Dr. Marshall has so many titles and interactions that it's hard to select which one. I did think about like uh, bringing that up, so I'm glad you did. So that is a very complex system that is complex for a number of reasons to get to the bottom of, of safety and efficacy, right? So how well does something, how safe is it and how well does it work, even if we've been doing it for a long time or even if it's a medication or a substance that's been used in one way, now we're looking at using it in a different way. And um, and I, I don't know that everybody appreciates that complexity and certainly you know much more than I do about it, but you know, a lot of people will say, well, aren't we just sort of rushing and throwing things out there without it being safe? But there's all these layers to make sure that it is safe. And even when you're in the middle of a, of a research study or a trial, it has different mechanisms that are sort of safety features to uh, stop the trial and uh, different overlaps of, of people, even of boards that look at this, right? Well, that's absolutely true. And indeed, we both know from our clinical training, the first dictum of medicine is first do no harm. Uh, and that translates into clinical research in the same way. Uh, if, if we are going to test the effectiveness or the efficacy, efficacy means can it work? Effectiveness means does it work? Mm-hmm. Because it can work, and if you can't get it to the patients, it's not, it's not effective because it doesn't work. Uh, the danger of the test is directly related to the severity of the illness. So if you've got somebody where 100% of the people are going to be dead in three weeks, you're willing to take some big chances to see if you can change that statistic. Like, like new chemotherapy agents in cancer. Right. Yeah. But, but even in that context, the first emphasis is the minimal danger to the patient mm-hmm. participant with, for the maximal return. And that balance is put in there very early on in the intervention development process, done primarily even in animals before it ever gets to the first human. And then there's stages of clinical trial. The very first stage of a clinical trial is a safety trial. They put it either in normal volunteers, which is the best place for it to go, or in patients. Everyone's seen movies and heard stories of someone they've got end-stage cancer or something, and they're desperate. And so the scientist comes in and lets them and tries some new experimental therapy. That's not really how it's done. The way it's done is it's done in a very systematic way, and they find out the toxicity early. And I can't tell you how many candidate medicines never make it off the out of that phase because the 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 risk or the danger compared to the potential benefit is not that ratio is not sufficient there's not enough bang for the buck if mm-hmm. you will mm-hmm. to to risk that further but if it passes that they're typically called phase 1 trials if it passes that then the next question is will it work for what we're wanting it to work that's called a phase 2 trial it's typically it's an efficacy trial it's a smaller trial oftentimes done at one center and they do something called a placebo and they control it and a placebo is something that is as close to the interventional agent, the drug or whatever as possible, but not doesn't have an active principle in it. 
And it's so that the individual, because, again, someone who studies how the mind affects the immune system, this is particularly true in immune-based studies, mm-hmm. is that somebody can think they're doing something and it's working. It can have a sure. huge positive effect on it. And that's a placebo is sort of the old language of the sugar pill right. or the, exactly. the dummy pill right. that doesn't really have an active ingredient. Right. And if that's sufficiently positive, then they go to the next stage where they're looking at it in multi-different centers in a much larger population because, say, I select 100 people from the Jackson, Mississippi area, well, that's fine. So maybe it works in Jackson, Mississippi, but for some reason it wouldn't work in New York City or it wouldn't work in Los Angeles. So they look at it different. If it gets to that level, then if this is a uh, typical drug or uh, therapy, the FDA is already involved in this before they ever started. Then they go to the FDA and ask for approval to get approval to market that drug. Mm-hmm. Then even uh, in, the FDA can approve it uh, completely. They can. I, I have sat on the Pulmonary and Allergy Drug Advisory Committee for the last five years for the FDA. And so periodically they'll call a special meeting and ask us advisors, and you'll hear about this. Mm-hmm. Today they advise that the such and such is not worthwhile and doesn't work and so on. These are the advisory committees. But we're just advisors. We don't have any statutory authority. But the FDA, list, we're considered experts, and the FDA listens to what we have to say very carefully. They'll sometimes decide, you know what, it's a little bit of a gray area. So we want, when it gets out into the population for use, we want to make sure it's safe for everyone. So they'll have the sponsor do a phase four study, which is called a post-marketing study. And a lot of people, the interesting thing to say, and this is a message that I hope that the audience will appreciate, is that we can't do this without them. We can't, we yeah. can't will this to be done. So that, so that brings up another question. Do we have enough people currently that are involved in these studies, or is there a need for more? There's a huge need for more. And it's particularly of a need. One of the one of the things that, that attracted me to Mississippi originally from a research standpoint was the diversity of the population. Mm-hmm. Not only the racial diversity of the population, but the urban versus rural, which is a huge area now that we understand that rural patients have different responses than urban patients do, and socioeconomic. So you've got three intersecting variables here, racial variable, and the fourth one being gender. Well, there's different genders everywhere. But Mississippi is a a unique cauldron of individuals with those three interactive things there. And we are sought after. We have several NIH grants ongoing right now here. They specifically sought us, not because of me, but because of the population that we serve here. And we have a dramatic need. need and desire to have as many people engaged as we can, as diverse and inclusive as we can possibly be. So for in specifically, what's some of the current research that you're involved in right now for the immune system? So what kind of things are we looking at right here in Mississippi, not necessarily an abstract, you know, around the world, but what's what's really the thing that could impact people who want to be more involved in these studies, and what does that look like? Well, you know, right now is, and I think people are beginning to think about this, everybody's going around, hopefully everybody's going around getting their vaccines, and you've heard on the television, they've talked about the tridemic. There's three viral Mm -hmm. illnesses, the flu that we always get, COVID, which is still around, and now in adults, RSV, which all the pediatricians know have known about forever, and now us adult doctors, that virus, we never knew what people had, and it wasn't a flu. Turns out it might be RSV, and there are vaccines for this now. 
And I'm a huge vaccine advocate. I think it's a wonderful idea. You can get them all at one time if you want to. They do it to babies all the time. Or you can get them spaced out based upon what you want to do. But getting them is a good idea. I think that that's necessary, but I don't think it's sufficient. Mm -hmm. We need better antiviral resilience. The very first caller spoke to that in the issues related to functional Mm -hmm. medicine. We need to get our rest. We need a good diet and so on. But then there are other individuals where there may be, they want to augment it. Some people want high dose of vitamin therapy. Others have different and sundry things they want to use. Well, it turns out that many people know, but here in Mississippi, there is a National Center for Natural Products Research at Ole Miss. And I've been... Yeah, I think that's not something that a lot of people realize yeah. that. So, they, so they're looking at these sort of alternative natural products right. to see the impact of that in people's health. And, uh, you know, again, we get a lot of, I get my, our patients, you know, ask us questions. Should I be taking vitamin C? Should I be taking this supplement? Whatever it is, uh, ginkgo or whatever. Um, but, um, a lot of those, even though they're available over the counter, I don't think a lot of people understand that those haven't been studied to see if they're effective or if there are safety issues with those as well, right? Right. Given the fact that when I was training, I'm older than you, but when I was training, and I think even when you were training, we had a thing that we would list on the the problem list of our patients called polypharmacy. Yeah. They were taking too many medicines. Yeah. In my day, polypharmacy was five and over. And the latest statistic yeah. I saw of that is that over 70% of patients would at various and sundry times be at five or over medicines, particularly those with any kind of a chronic illness. The point being is that, okay, maybe vitamin C for a 20-year-old that's not taking anything in her diet different than anything else, she could take five grams a day, no problem. But what about somebody that has underlying kidney disease? Mm-hmm. What about someone who has a is being treated for cancer and so on? So the safety, and they're not evaluated. The FDA doesn't get into this business, and you'll see the label. It says the FDA have not evaluated this statement. Right. So they're not saying it's wrong, but they're not telling you it's right either. And sometimes these statements come from people that don't have the data to support what they're saying. So the idea of taking natural products and putting them through the appropriate clinical trials, the NIH is interested in, and we're doing a study here now using a product that came from the Natural Products Center at Ole Miss. Uh, the brand name of it is Emulina, and it's spelled I-M-M-U-L-I-N-A, Emulina, and it's an extract of the spirulina cyanobacteria. Many people know about spirulina. It's a health uh, food. It's been used around the world for centuries as a basic food stuff. Food source, right. It grows, like, it grows like an algae. They take it and dry it out and fix it up and make it, uh, um, uh, make it bread and various stuff out of it. And they found at Ole Miss a, a extract of that that has high immune potentiating ability. And we are funded to look and see if in normal individuals does this do the what we call biomarkers, which are lab tests, immune lab tests, that would suggest that it would help protect or increase the resilience of individuals against Originally, it was the influenza virus, but with COVID pandemic sure. coming up now yeah. and with the RSV, it would be against any potential respiratory virus. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, and our special guest is Dr. Galen Marshall, and talking to us about medical research, in specifically research around the immune system and what different agents might be affecting that. We've been talking about emulina. We're going to take a, a call or two and then get back on our, our subject, because there's 
fascinating stuff. We need to hear about that and some ways that you might um, benefit from some clinical trials and how to be involved in that as a patient. So let's go to Don from Jackson. Good morning, Don. Yes, good morning. How are you all? Good. What's your yes, question uh, this morning? I have a question for the doctor. Is, uh, is there a blood test or anything that my family physician can do to uh, test the strength of our immune system? And uh, additionally, is uh, going to ask that or state that I, I take a supplement of colostrum from Immune Tree uh, to help support my immune system. And just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. Sure. Uh, the the first question, thank you for the question. The first question is uh, whether there is a single test that you can use to screen. And the answer is no, there's not. Uh, unfortunately, there are people out there that will sell this to you for mm. several hundred dollars. And they'll tell you that we can tell you what's wrong with your immune system. Go on. What I will tell you, and Dr. Jimmy would agree with me completely here, is that a lab test is only of value as it correlates back to what's going on with the individual. It is not itself diagnostic. So here's the good news. There is a, a, when you get a lab test, whatever the test is, what you'll almost always see is a range of a number between 1 and 10 or 27 and 364, whatever it is. The way they do that is they take 25 normal people. The older I get, I, the less I know what normal means. But <laughs> they take 25 normal people and they draw their blood or do the sample and they get 25 different numbers and they take an average of that. And then if you look at the in the span of that average, there are 95% of the individuals, the, the statistical term is called a standard deviation. Two standard deviations says 95% of those 25 individuals will fall in between two numbers. That's where you get that number. So then by definition, 2.5% of normal people are going to be below that, that range, and 2.5% are going to be above that range. It points your healthcare provider into the right direction to help take care of you. But there is no single test, and it makes sense that there wouldn't be any more than there would be a single test to say, does your automobile work correctly? Yeah, well, I, was, well, what, I was thinking the exact same thing. Yeah, yeah. What, what part are you talking about? You're talking about the tire pressure? You're talking about the RPMs the engine generates, the temperature of the air conditioning? It's the whole thing. So the good news for you is that there are two major signs of an immune dysfunction that matter. Number one is recurrent infection. And in fact, the sine qua known for a weak immune system is a recurrent infection. And I see this all the time in my immunology clinic. People concerned about that. Are their healthcare providers concerned and they send them to me? And we have specific protocols that we work for through, but it's not a single test. It's multiple tests. The other one is when you've got evidence of hypersensitivity, like we talked about before. You go outside and you're sneezing all the time. Uh, maybe you have an allergy. You go out, you begin to have trouble with your joints and they hurt or your muscles and they hurt or you break out in a rash that you can't figure out what's going on and so on. That could be a hypersensitivity where the immune system is out of whack and there are assessments that could be done for that. But the good news is that the, the individual who takes good care of themselves really doesn't need a test to prove that their immune system works. It tells you by keeping you in a good, helpful situation. What about, what about and you know, we've been talking about some other things that we might can take as a supplement and then why that might be useful or not useful. What about colostrum? Well, the interesting, the, the colostrum idea has been around for a long mm -hmm. time and the concept of it is good because it's so good for a newborn baby. Mm -hmm. 
The question is, is it good for us as an adult? And I have the mindset, uh, these are questions that get debated and argued. People get very passionate about. People come into my clinic and ask the question. But I I tell them there's three components to it. Number one is that if it's not harmful. Mm -hmm. Number two is that if it helps you. And number three is that if it's not horribly expensive, where it's your, you know, your mortgage in the house to be able to afford to do this, and some of them it's not that far off, then I'm fine with it, even though there may not be a science to go along with it. But but it is good to tell your health care provider this because some of these natural products will interact adversely right. with the medications that you're taking and can create a real problem where by themselves it wouldn't be a problem and the medicine by itself wouldn't be the problem. The combination's a problem. So don't hide it from your health care provider. And if you've got a health care provider that is somehow upset that you're taking a natural product and it helps you, that's really their problem. That's not yours. Yeah, that's great question and uh, great answers there. Let's go to Ardell from Ridgeland. Good morning, Ardell. Good morning. Thanks for taking my question. Um, Dr. Marshall, is there an active clinical clinical trial involved with Emulina at Ole Miss? As a matter of fact, there is. There, it's it's down here in Jackson. Uh, they we're collaborating with people in uh, uh, in Oxford. They've provided the uh, investigational product for us, but we're doing it here uh, at uh, UMMC. We have a really beautiful new clinical research and trial center on the top floor of the main hospital, main adult hospital. And we're doing that study now. And in in essence, it's a very straightforward study where we're looking at three different doses of the emulina, a lower dose, the standard dose that has been given, and an even a higher dose versus placebo. It's blinded to the participant. The volunteer doesn't know what she or he is taking. And I don't know what you're taking yet because the pharmacist put all that together you, uh, the person comes in, they're studied, uh, they take this for three months, and they're studied, their blood is studied to see if there are markers in the uh, blood that change that would be associated with an improved resilience against these viruses, these respiratory viruses that we're talking about. If that uh, we're and we're in the midst of that recruiting now, we still have plenty of room for lots of people. It's uh, just eighteen and above. We're really interested in older individuals whose immune systems tend to wane naturally. Anyway, will this help boost them up even more in something that's easy to take? Uh, by studying it the way we're studying it, we can find out, how, do you need to take it all season? Can you take it for a week? If you take it, if if your spouse gets sick and you take it to keep you from getting sick, all these different scenarios are things that we can do. And we're actively recruiting uh, participants now. So if somebody's interested in that particular study, how would they how would they get that information? Two really easy ways. Number one is we have a phone number to call. It's 601 815 9282 uh, 815-9282 there's typically someone that answers the phone if you call after hours it's a voicemail it call you back the next day or if you're more email related it's emulina flu i m m u l i n a f l u flu 
at umc.edu, emulinaflu at umc.edu. If you qualify for the study, uh, there is a uh, financial honorarium for time and effort. Uh, the study is can vary between as few as seven visits and as much as 12. We have a little sub-study in there which gets explained to the individual, and they can decide if they want to participate. But it doesn't matter. As long as you're 18 or over, we're very interested in talking to you about the idea of participating in our trial. All right. That's great. Thank you, Ardell, for that question. Hopefully that answered uh, that question and plenty of others probably that are uh, interested in that. Let's go to Judy from Tupelo. Good morning, Judy. Hello. Yes, ma'am. Tupelo. Yes, go ahead. Uh, I want to do uh, ask how do we get away from the stigma and the misinformation about the COVID vaccines Uh Everybody, uh, a lot of people I know is just kind of freaked out and won't take it. And, you know, don't tell me for me to tell them if I take it because my body gives off some kind of something that's dangerous to them. And uh, how do we get past that? I know the government's not just deliberately trying to kill everybody. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question that uh, I think is a challenge for a lot of us. We've certainly talked about it on this program. And unfortunately, there is a lot of things in our culture right now that are misconceptions and other agendas to try to, you know, to try to move away from that. And as we often say on this program, you know, our, our, our job and my job, because I took an oath, is to try to, to give you the best information, to give our audience the best information about uh, what's available and what can protect you. So, well, while COVID vaccine is sort of the sort of the vaccine du jour, if you will, uh, with this discussion, this is not a new discussion. This is going on, and in fact, I was a little bitty boy. I'm, I'm just almost your dad's age, uh, and I was just a little bitty boy. But there was a huge thing going on with polio back in the '50s they, with the idea of, oh my goodness, how would you give these children all this polio vaccine? And there was a very large group of people that were very actively opposed to it. But polio is a rare thing. I have never personally seen a case of poliomyelitis. Uh, uh, rare and contemporary. I mean, certainly it was. And that's what I was yeah, going to say. Yeah. It is rare today, whereas everybody sees pictures of the kids in mm-hmm. iron lungs because of the devastating effect. Right. That is, we had a president of the United States that was affected by polio. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, uh, FDR was uh, a cripple because of that. Well, the really important thing of that is that in the, the number one, if you will, lasting thing in immunology in medicine in the 20th century was the development of practical developments of vaccines. Now, does vaccine work in everyone? No, nothing works in everyone. Nothing works in everyone because we're different. So are there some people that get a vaccine then and have a, an adverse reaction? Yes. Can we predict that? Well, if we predict it, we don't do it, obviously, because some of them will have an allergy to a component in the vaccine, and we don't give them that vaccine, or we give it to them in a very special way. The thing with the COVID that was a particularly concern the thing with the COVID that was particularly concerning was related to the idea of how fast it was developed. And it made a lot of people nervous because the normal development process for a new vaccine is 15 to 20 years. And it developed this one in 18 months. Mm-hmm. But the need for it outweighed that shortened period. And now we're learning about the safety and learning the, the limitations of it. And we'll continue to learn as we go on. 
Many people don't want the flu vaccine because they claim the flu vaccine will give them the flu, except for one thing. The flu vaccine is a killed vaccine. Right. It's not going to give them the flu. It might make them feel bad for a few days. No argument about that. But I always tell even patients in clinic that will tell me that I'll say you've never really had full-blown flu or you wouldn't say that the vaccine gave you the flu. It's a big difference from feeling bad for two or three days to I can't pick my head off the right. pillow for a week or more. And, and I know a lot of people have some concerns about that to say, I got choose your vaccine and then I felt bad. I had muscle aches or I had a, you know, maybe my temperature went up to like 99 or 100 after that. Um, But isn't that sort of the immune system recognizing that as saying, hey, yes, back to those basic questions that you brought up at the start of the hour. And that's sort of an indication that the vaccine is working with your immune system to sort of train it to do what it's designed to do. Absolutely right. And there are even studies that have been done to show these biomarkers to see how well did you respond to the vaccine mm-hmm. tend to be higher in people that have some symptom associated with it as opposed to people that get the injection and nothing happens. They yeah. don't, it doesn't hurt. They don't feel bad. It's not sore and so on. And there's variability of that. But the point is, is exactly what you say. And I tell patients that. If you feel a little bit bad for a day or two, that's actually a compliment that says that that vaccine is doing its job in your body and you're going to have a better response than you do others. And remember, vaccines don't is not they're not going to be 100 percent preventative. Mm -hmm. But what they do in the covid vaccine is a good example of that. What the covid vaccine does is not just prevent disease in a high percentage of individuals, but it prevents severe disease. So they don't go to the hospital. They don't die as a result of this. That's where it really makes its difference. So as a 73 year old man, I have no question that I was the first guy in line for the new covid vaccine and for the uh, flu vaccine and for the RSV vaccine. Why? Because my immune system is not what it is now. It's not what it was when I was 30 years old. Sure. Thank you, Judy from Tupelo for calling with that. Uh, let's let's round up a little bit. We have about uh, two and a half minutes left. Tell us a little bit more about the Emilina trial and sort of, again, we'll, we'll make sure everybody has uh, access to how they might get in touch if they're interested in okay. participating. Well, the big thing, again, about the, about the trial is that we're looking for normal individuals and we're looking for diverse normal individuals. So we want men, women, older, younger uh, black, white, brown, uh, Native American. We want anyone who can walk through the door. Now, the only people that we would exclude in the screen, and that's what you can screen literally over the phone or uh, online. The only one we would exclude are people that have uncontrolled chronic disease. So if you're a cancer patient that is in active chemotherapy right now, you need to wait a little while. We're hoping you'll be able to benefit from this someday, but we don't want to put you at any additional risk. If you have a terrible disease that is being not well controlled and so on, we not, we won't have you be in this study, but we hope you can get benefit from this later on. And we, we're not doing that simply because the, the measures, the immune measures we're doing are going to be sort of messed up in these individuals anyway and won't give us an idea to see whether it works or not. But other than that, we want as many people that come in. I mean, I've got... 400 and some odd slots, and I've filled less than a fourth of them. Oh, so we and I've got a little over a year, I got a little over a year to do it, and I'd really like to get them filled in uh, sooner rather than later. And uh, we have a wonderful group. Of, uh, the clinical research support program at UMC is wonderful. They're very. Uh, 
patient-oriented, very friendly, and very uh, cooperating. We try to accommodate people the very best we can. So from a, you know, with that many patients that you're looking for to be involved in that um, uh, or, or people to be involved in that, how, how you know, with those those sort of seven to 12 visits, would that be people that are just in Jackson or could you be outside the Jackson area and still participate? Well, we're, we absolutely would take anyone from within the state. And one of the things that we're trying to see based on the recruitment rate, are there ways for us to be able to see people in different parts of the state? I mean, it's a lot to ask somebody sure. from Tupelo to drive to Jackson for the study. But we're looking to see, are there ways that we could recruit them because of the rural part? And stay tuned for more information. So tell us more about uh, those contact numbers. Give those to us again, if you don't mind. Sure thing. Again, the phone number is 601-815-9282. 815-9282. And the email address is emulinaflu, emulinaflu, one word, at umc.edu. Well, thank you, Dr. Marshall, for being with us today. It's been a great discussion and great calls as usual. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell. The podcast producer is Abram Nanny. You can tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.